Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. Today is Wednesday, March 9th, 2022, and we're going to be answering the following three questions we've been hearing from international educators this past week. First up, what is the U.S. doing for Ukrainians here currently? Second, how best can U.S. colleges connect with students overseas? And finally, what is our best response to events in Ukraine? So we'll be answering these three questions and more on today's SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. For those that are new to the Roundup, as we do each Wednesday on uh, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on Facebook Live, but then on repeat on our YouTube channel and our Facebook page for SMIE Consulting, as well as on an audio-only podcast version, we take the news stories of the day, we look, at, look for themes that we see developing amongst those articles and news stories and come up with some questions that we answer in depth uh, with our spin on what these particular stories might have uh, in terms of relevance for what we do in international education here in the United States. So as we do each week, we start with the first kind of headline question of the day that is uh, foremost in most international educators' minds. First up, it is, what is the U.S. doing for Ukrainians currently in the United States? Obviously, everything has been impacted by the war in Ukraine, uh, the Russian invasion uh, by uh, Vladimir Putin and his army has uh, disrupted uh, the world in many ways, uh, in, in a way is not seen since World War II in terms of the massive uh, refugees that we see pouring out of Ukraine, <coughs> particularly young women and children, to avoid, um, avoid the, the, the fighting. But I think what we, our, our immediate concerns are obviously with those that are still uh, directly impacted by, uh, by, the, by the war in Ukraine. Uh, but we also turn an eye toward our own campuses and think about, well, hey, do we have, when the wars began back on February 25th, do we, or 24th, do we have any Ukrainians on campus, either scholars or students? What are, what are, what's happening? Um, and how, how, how can we help them? And I think that is, uh, that's, that's the natural reaction uh, when we have these kind of world events and international educators are used to keeping an eye on what's going on in the wider world because it impacts our students every day. Uh, and that's something that we have to keep, keep foremost in our minds in our jobs is just keeping our ears to the ground as to what's going on. And when crises like this occur, having a plan in place or at least a, a, a set of procedures you go through that you can, hey, reach out to those that are impacted directly, if not on your campus that you might have students or scholars from those countries affected, but also any relations you have with partner institutions over, overseas. And that's, that's going to be coming into focus uh, at, the, at the last part of our uh, roundup today. We'll ask, answer that question about what we should be doing as, as uh, institutions. Uh, re related to students and that type of thing. But as far as the U.S. government's gone, uh, they have, a, they have uh, acted very quickly. Uh, and in terms of the what has been encouraged by, um, by, by educational associations, employment organizations across the country, uh, a letter was sent this past week uh, to, uh, sec obviously, Secretary Blinken uh, from State, uh, Secretary Mayorkas, uh, from Homeland Security, and obviously President Biden in terms of what the United States could be doing as a country for uh, the affected uh, people that are in the United States currently. And there were three basic um, 
pieces that w the these uh, associations had asked for in this letter, this joint letter. First was TPS status, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, also deferred enrollment departure uh, for those that uh, were are impacted directly, that were going to be in for deportation proceedings, uh, that that would be deferred, and then special student relief. And we'll talk about uh, particularly the TPS in a bit. But this uh, set of recommendations uh, by, uh, by this, these groups of associations really uh, speak to acting to uh, directly help those that are in the United States from, the, from this war-torn area now, this country of Ukraine. So in terms of the definitions that they uh, have in order to meet the criteria that TPS and SSR have and DED, uh, it makes sense that there's background, obviously, of what's going on uh, when the military invasion of Ukraine happened and the what, uh, how many people are impacted by this uh, and uh, those that are currently in Ukraine. So there's a lot of, uh, lot of, lot of details in here as to what, what's being considered. But I think the, uh, for our international educators, obviously the TPS, Temporary Protected Status, which allows uh, for additional benefits for uh, those uh, Ukrainians in the United States on a variety of visas uh, to have 18 months uh, to, um, to potential uh, uh, emergency work authorization, uh, uh, prevention of, uh, of, of uh, deportation, that type of thing. So the temporary uh, uh, temporary uh, severe economic hardship employment that would be uh, would be it, obviously these students are facing uh, is very significant. Uh, SSR is uh, special student relief allows eligible students to remain in the U.S. by suspending or alterating rules regarding status, full course loads, uh, work eligibility during the designation period, because uh, that is extraordinary and those are extraordinary and temporary conditions uh, in terms of what's going on there. Uh, so that uh, TPS and SSR are ones that certainly we, we feel as international educators uh, that are most important to safeguard our students uh, from, uh, from, from long-term harm. Obviously, if their funding is all in Ukraine, uh, some of that and if any of their family uh, provide that income are affected by the, pan by the armed incursion by the uh, invasion by the Russians, that obviously will have long-term consequences too. So. The work permission. Uh, this has happened regularly for, uh, and is there in there is currently uh, I think eight or nine countries around the world that are have been granted TPS that are currently valid. This happened in Nepal after the earthquakes. Uh, earthquakes there ravaged that country. Uh, a lot of countries uh, right now I think South Sudan, Sudan, and Ethiopia are currently on that list uh, because of civil wars that are affecting those countries. So that, this is something that is fairly regularly uh, considered, and uh, the government has acted quickly. Uh, that's part of the, uh, part of the uh, rationale uh, for uh, basically the same time that letter went up. Uh, you see t uh, t uh, Secretary Mayorkas designated Ukraine uh, for temporary status uh, for, uh, for 18 months. The SSR isn't covered in this, but uh, we hope that that gets added soon. Uh, but in terms of uh, protecting students against um, having to be full-time uh, and obviously employment while potentially needing to work additional hours, allowing emergency work authorization off campus, that type of thing. So uh, that is something that will, will certainly um, help protect them in the process. Uh, that, 
they they can apply for employment authorization documents to work now. Uh, so that's certainly something that's moving forward with TPS status. So that's encouraging to see that. Related to that, whenever uh, TPS is is uh, is granted, usually there's some private sector uh, fundraising that goes on, and the organization that often is at the forefront of this is IIE. Uh, there's a they, they have an emergency student fund that they set up uh, regularly when these kind of war-torn countries or impacted regions, disasters, and all these other things. They ha are very uh, very much used to doing this. Uh, this is uh, they they have an, this emergency student fund, and that's. Uh, since 2010 alone, this, uh, this fund has uh, issued over 2,000 grants, providing over $5 million in critical support to students from around the world. So uh, it does, it is something that uh, was announced that current funding efforts uh, from IIE uh, to, um, uh, to, that can, that are currently available. Uh, Afghanistan is part of that as well. Uh, we'll see uh, what happens. Uh, what happens with uh, with what's happening in Ukraine? So, well, uh, that's a that's a that's a something that the private sector is doing. It enc encourages institutions to for to uh, nominate students who are impacted by the war in Ukraine, and and international students who are impacted by uh, what's happened in Afghanistan in the last year. So that is certainly something that I'm encouraged to see. Obviously, individual institutions often reach out in cases like this to those students and hopefully provide that uh, in-person care that they need at the moment uh, more directly. But uh, the TPS and the emergency funding that's available privately through IIE is, is encouraging to see uh, and I always applaud them for their efforts uh, getting into the fight uh, to help protect uh, those that are being uh, at most risk from what's happening uh, that are here in the United States that are impacted by world events. So that's uh, the first question out of the way, and we'll move on to question number two. How best can U.S. colleges connect with students? And this is a little bit out of kilter. Obviously, the war is impacting uh, and consuming a lot of our attention in terms of what we're watching, what we're reading about, uh, what we're dealing with on campus in terms of fallout, particularly if you have um, large concentrations of Ukrainians that are directly impacted, but also potentially Russian students that might be seen as uh, uh, Putin supporters, even though uh, most camp I haven't heard that yet, much like we had with, with the breakout of COVID-19 and how uh, Asians were targeted for because they're seen as the source of the, f the source of the flu to begin with, go home and that type of thing. So that obviously that xenophobia, that racism that uh, per uh, permeates every so often. There may be maybe circumstances where something like that happens, unfortunately, with uh, Russian students that are seen as as the enemy now. Um, certainly, we'll, we'll talk more about this in, in our next question about uh, institutional responses when it comes to Russia. Uh, but we'll, we'll talk about here, and I want to focus on this uh, issue because it's one that always needs uh, a, a friendly reminder as to how important uh, the international student journey is and how it evolves over time and how needs of initial prospects are vastly different from those that are making their final decision whether where to enroll to those that are on campus to those that are going to be graduating soon to those that are 10 years out uh, in alumni status so 
service to students does not stop when they get to campus. In fact, that's when it gets even more intensive. It shifts gears completely. And services to graduates, uh, soon to be graduates and recent graduates and alumni, those, there are different levels of service that uh, they will need. It's an evolving journey. And what I, I've liked of, with the team at Inted, they've done a series uh, coming out of uh, AIEA. Uh, they, they began tracing the international student journey and with a look at what might help or hinder your relationship with prospects along the way. Uh, and they focused on engaging content and great follow-up. And that's, that's an important part of any successful communication and journey you want to take students through, is that engaging them and following up correctly and appropriately in all times. That is something that um, is, 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 is key. But there is also the piece that's uh, when it comes to marketing to, to students. Uh, we focus on information we want to give them, uh, but we also need to think and really be tempered in how we present it is how uh, we are dealing with what getting the prospect the information they need um, to give you uh, and what uh, so that uh, that that's something that you you have to put into your processes that you're collecting information and uh, uh, when you're putting together ads or or com flow messaging is what what that call to action is in each of those uh, directing them to your channels to your website to landing pages for events whatever it might be so what they've uh, what they focus on in this part two of this journey international student journey which they call the long and winding road and I certainly agree with that completely but uh, they talk about three three key approaches that uh, institutions need to have provide easy access to staff and students. And I know in some countries uh, or in some institutions, this can be a very difficult thing to achieve uh, because they don't really um, do anything outside emails to prospects. That they don't. Uh, really invest in instant messaging uh, campaigns uh, or instant messaging availability of uh, staff to st prospective students. Uh, that uh, they do the, having live chat widgets on your on your site for either auto response uh, or potentially live events that are like a twenty staffed uh, Q and A time that uh, that could be available where you have students or staff on online to answer questions live. Uh, so that is certainly uh, something that uh, we, we think about uh, when we're in terms of communicating and providing that access through live events uh, on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube, uh, featuring different students from different countries, uh, inviting uh, your alumni to events as well. Uh, these are ways to better engage your audiences uh, and to provide a, a greater depth of content and a greater depth of potential relationships that you can develop out of these uh, communications. And you do that by providing the ease of access for staff to, the, to your students and students to your staff and alumni. And the second piece they, they bring on, they focus on in this article is understanding and crafting prospect personas. Now, you know, uh, if you followed us uh, at um, what we do at SMIE Consulting, we launched something a couple of years ago called the six P's of strategic international enrollment management. And what, uh, one of those P's is uh, focusing on people, uh, for focusing on uh, personal connections. And they do that by developing personas, personas that students 
prospective students can relate to. And these personas are the kinds of students you want enrolled on your campus or have enrolled on your campus, the kinds of students that you want prospective students to identify with to make the con connection with your institution much more substantive. So when you do that, and you under, need to understand, though, obviously what your what your what your current students are made of, and what their commonalities are, and what what their kind of personalities uh, traits that you want to be emphasizing to future students. Uh, the personas help get everybody on the same page in terms of what the target audience is and keeping your approach consistent. And when you speak with your current students or alumni, why they chose your school, you find, uh, find out what they were, the, the kind of a, for lack of a better word, the hurdles they were willing to over, overcome, uh, that they're willing to go through uh, to get to you, because we all know how complicated we sometimes make our admissions processes in the United States at different colleges and universities. Uh, but you think about, getting at those motivations. And then as a result of understanding motivations across your currently enrolled students, you better identify what they wanted to hear when they were prospective students. Uh, that what, what of your message as an institution really appealed to them that says, hey, yes, that's the place that I want to be because of X, Y, or Z. And that's something that when you have that captured and then you can create those personas around those feelings, around these motivations, you are much better, more likely to connect with your future students. So I think this is a, a really essential point here. Another piece that I think makes a huge difference with, with prospective students is giving them something different. Uh, giving them, uh, being, having that central message continued throughout your messaging, uh, but also provide in the content development that you're doing, this is where you can be creative and really get stuck in. And the WinTED folks give a couple of great examples here. So what would, and they ask the question, what would a prospective engineering major from Mumbai find exciting? What might spark a reaction? This is from the article directly. What might spark a reaction from that hardworking junior executive in Sao Paulo? So you, again, getting into those personas and coming up with a list of ways to surprise and delight them, uh, to answer those quick questions about uh, what's, uh, hey, what's it like, um, uh, using the athletic facilities uh, uh, off hours or uh, if they're getting a job in their field of study or uh, what, uh, what, where, where can I get coffee on campus, those kinds of things. Uh, the, the, real, the idea is here to provide something different. Uh, we, uh, one of the schools I was consulting uh, with uh, last year, we uh, desi decided to introduce something called uh, uh, personalized admitted student tours of campus where st prospective students could request a tour. Uh, we'd match them up with, an, with a current student to actually uh, give them a list of things that they could show them on campus. And they do a, a FaceTime tour with them basically around, uh, around the campus with that individual student you know, from, our, from, that, from that international admissions office. So that was different. That was something I don't think anyone's really doing uh, where they're personalizing that kind of a tour. They have a small enough cohort of admitted students where they can do that over a, over a two, three week period. So that's something that really, if you make that offer to students, that might be a game changer for them once they've admitted to say, hey, this campus really reached out to me and they made me feel like I was already on campus. Uh, they matched me up with a student, they gave me a personalized tour of campus, of what I wanted to see, because I'm not gonna be able to visit before I enroll. So this is, this is a, these are the kinds of things that really matter in the end. 
So really, uh, I, kudos again to the Inted team. Always uh, pleased with their with their content in terms of where they're taking things, and certainly the, uh, the kind of the perspective that they take uh, with uh, international student enrollment and the uh, range of issues that uh, campuses need to be investing more time and energy in to be truly proficient in in their and effective in their recruitment efforts. So that's it for question number two. We'll get to our final question here. Uh, which is what's our best response as higher ed professionals in the United States to events in Ukraine? Now, globally, we've seen a fairly consistent outside of uh, the BRICS countries, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, uh, South Africa, who have uh, obviously Russia is part of that mix of the BRICS countries, uh, these developing economies that have uh, expanded uh, outside the G7 and are the most direct threats to G7 hegemony in the world. But certainly um, we've seen what the reaction outside of those countries that have either neutral or have quietly supported Russia in various ways by not imposing sanctions. I would also potentially add Mexico to that list who refused to sanction Russia. But outside of those few select countries that abstained at the UN motion or uh, voted against the UN motion to condemn or censure Russia for their invasion of Ukraine, the worldwide reaction has been overwhelmingly positive towards Ukraine, supporting Ukraine and overly negative to um, cutting ties with Russia. We've seen everybody from Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, uh, Twitter uh, getting banned in Russia or uh, those organizations shutting up shop in Russia for the time being because of imposition of new uh, government regulations there that would, would punish anyone found to have distributed uh, what Russia would deem to be fake news about their military or what the government was doing in uh, the Ukraine. Uh, so you've seen businesses, uh, everything from McDonald's to Netflix and everywhere in between have shut up shop uh, and are divesting from Russia because of this invasion. So uh, you've seen a very uh, in addition to all the sanctions that have been put in place by the by the Western powers, uh, you've seen uh, very much uh, the world sentiment turning against Russia. Uh, now we've seen this happen in sport, uh, where uh, Russian teams have been banned from competitions in in uh, world soccer, uh, we uh, world football, I should say, uh, or in. Uh, the Olympics, uh, the, the Russian athletes were not able, able to compete in the Paralympics in Beijing. Uh, they, um, and there are other various elements of this that have, have gone on that uh, were outside of maybe additional individual athletic competitions, uh, like there was a gymnastics event in the Gulf recently and um, one Russian uh, athlete gymnast got himself into trouble by wearing a Z on his uh, outfit to support, show his support for the Russian army that's invaded uh, Ukraine. So he's getting punished as a result of that. But uh, the general flow has been so much against what's happened in Ukraine. Uh, colleagues in Europe um, that are, uh, have been very, very vocal about um, institutions around Europe and educational institutions around Europe and any, any that have particular ties uh, from the outside looking in as consultants, they're pushing for um, institutions in the UK, other countries in Europe to, uh, to cut ties with Russian institutions. 
Uh, you've seen uh, scientific bodies in, in Europe uh, that have cut ties with um, uh, Russian, uh, Russian like, like, institute, like institutions in Russia because uh, the Russian Association of Scientists has thrown their support behind Putin. So organizations and institutions and businesses in Russia uh, that are seen as part of the infrastructure or directly supporting uh, the government financially or otherwise are seen as um, really persona non grata for a lot of us in higher ed these days. Uh, even though we might have personal relationships with staff at those campuses, the, what the go their government has done has put us in the United States and other countries in a in a frame of mind that says no, uh, we can, we're, we're we're not going to do business with you, and kudos to um, MIT who day after the invasion began, uh, MIT uh, who, which had been instrumental in getting the Skolkovo Institute of Science and Technology, which they call Skoltech, uh, off the ground a few years ago, uh, that relationship has come to an end. Uh, as of that day. So they were very decisive within um, a day of, of the war starting. They've cut ties. Other institutions around the country have been doing likewise, have madly uh, scrambling to look at where their uh, financial commitments are overseas. And if any are, are involve uh, Russia, then th those institutional ties are under serious consideration, if not already being canceled. So a lot of institutions are following uh, MIT's uh, lead in that regard, I think. Uh, and you'll see a gr uh, more of a groundswell toward that for those that have existing relationships with institutions in Russia. So it, it's a really at a time uh, where I think, uh, unlike any that we've seen, uh, where a nation's leader has basically plunged his country into ec near economic collapse uh, because of his historical mis uh, illusions about, uh, you know, delusions about uh, Ukraine always being a part of Russia. Uh, anyone who knows their history, yes, there have been periods when Russia has 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 uh, owned Ukrainian territory, but uh, uh, that has not always been the case. In fact, at one point, uh, the uh, Ukrainian force uh, Ukraine in as a as a nation state was more powerful than Russia and more expansive um, at times. But uh, certainly post collapse of the Soviet Union, they've been an independent nation and and uh, become. Uh, a largely democratic one, but that's uh, and a separate one from uh, Russia. Obviously, there are those in uh, parts of Russia, uh, parts of the Ukraine that are have always been Russian speakers. Maybe have family still in Russia, uh, feel more Russian than Ukrainian, but they live in Ukraine. That's that's what's led to some of the separatist uh, movements in uh, Crimea uh, with the annexation in 2014 and the invasion of uh, Donbass, um, of the Donbas. Donbass region in 2014 as well, still contested territory uh, outside of uh, outside of uh, Vladimir Putin's mind. Uh, in terms of what's uh, what the U.S. institutions are, are going to be fought, faced with is, frankly, some of these might be um, it, it might extend beyond what MIT's done with a research institution that they've partnered with and helped establish. Uh, a lot of institutions will be looking at. Uh, who's been funding them from Russia, and whether they—that's uh, dirty money now—and whether they can uh, um, ethically, morally, uh, 
take it anymore or need to refund it anymore. So there are financial consequences to institutions, much like the businesses that have divested interest in uh, in Russian uh, in doing business in Russia. Uh, you've seen um, European nations uh, that have are much more tied to uh, to Russia for their ed- energy needs. Um, making some tough decisions about what uh, what their future energy consumption uh, directions will be coming from, uh, where they're going to be getting their energy. Uh, but Russia, uh, cutting off Russian energy is the most direct way outside of the sanctions that have already been imposed, and frankly should have been imposed at the beginning, uh, to not buy uh, Russian oil anymore. Uh, and the gas and everything else, even though it's a, it's going to be an awful time to do it. It's still winter, uh, just coming in toward the end of winter in Europe, and you're going to need um, need that, and you still need that fuel. Um, that's whatever it be, natural gas or oil, whatever you're talking about. Those um, resources, if you set up your your countries in terms of where you're buying it from. Uh, puts yourself in a very difficult situation. Do I heat, provide heat for our, our people in our country or do I uh, stand up for what's right? Uh, and that's, um, that's a position that uh, there's a lot of balancing going on in Europe right now in, in terms of those energy needs and how do we, what's a short-term fix? Or can we cut ourselves off completely? Probably not, but how we certainly reduce our dependence on, uh, on, uh, in, on Russian oil and that type of end gas. So we'll see what happens, but certainly MIT has been at the forefront of what I think more colleges and universities are going to do in terms of examining uh, their ties. But what I also want to pay attention to here uh, is how we show our support. I mentioned in our newsletter last week uh, the, um, the importance of communicating with your affected students and uh, acting on that right away. Clients that I've, I've, I've worked with, you know, that's one of the first things I'm asking them. Hey, what's, your, what's the situation with your Ukrainian students? What are you doing? What's the outreach been? Who's been the one sending the message? What has the message been? Uh, that, is, that is pretty key. Um, what I think is, uh, and, and kind of a, it must do uh, in the earliest days of this, of this war, uh, they've uh, some some institutions kind of saw it coming, uh, as as did many uh, political pundits uh, that Russia was going to invade. So they may might have might have gotten ahead of the curve if they had the time uh, to really think. And okay, who do we need to be reaching out to if and when uh, Russia invades? So uh, hopefully institutions ha- have been unable to respond in a lot these last uh, almost two weeks now. Uh, but we're we're at the point now where it's not just about institutions reaching out to students uh, to, that are impacted and scholars, obviously, if you have faculty from Ukraine. It's also about um, making your community aware of what you can do uh, to help. Uh, and that I, I'm, I'll be sharing a link in, I did in the newsletter on Monday, but from uh, George Mason University. Uh, it's a message to the entire um, Mason community about uh, what the institution has done uh, to um, to help students adjust, uh, particularly the Ukrainian students that are they have uh, on campus, so that they make the point that uh, we have a number of students that really are, uh, they're, they're, they are uh, worrying every day and night for their family and friends back home uh, that are in bomb shelters in basements of buildings that are being bombed uh, throughout the country. Uh, it's also something that. Um, uh, the, uh, the institution obviously highlights in their message we, we need to be, uh, as, with the focus on our Ukrainian population, we also can't disregard the number of uh, Russian students that are enrolled at Mason. 
uh, and the letter makes the point that they're not responsible for or even connected to the war, but they no doubt will feel the impact, um, probably more directly uh, and share a sense of guilt with what's gone on, hopefully. But because uh, they're getting access, frankly, they're getting access to information, their uh, family and friends that don't, uh, that rely on Western social media aren't getting back home in Russia. They're just getting spoon fed the state line. Uh, and only what's approved, the approved message is that it's not an invasion, it's a special military operation. Uh, they can't even say war, it's a war. They don't have any clue of what's, uh, the, unless they have access to Western media, of what's happened in Ukraine and the damage that's been done, the bombings and the war crimes that have already been committed. And uh, I think most Russians and those, there's certainly been enough folks in Russia that have uh, do have access to Western media, even after uh, everything's been shut down, that have protested, and God bless them. That they've been arrested immediately. There's been thousands arrested in the last two weeks, uh, and you're going to see more of that. But you, you know that the Russians that are in the United States now, they're probably trying to just get, trying to keep their heads down and not advertise that they're Russian uh, right at this point because uh, they're going to probably feel like they have a target on their back and be, uh, be abused for it. Uh, so it's really sad that that, ha that exists, and it's the, it's the kind of, um, I mean, the logical, ex not the logical extension of cancel culture, but uh, uh, that's uh, Russians fall into that mix nowadays. Uh, but uh, cancel culture is a whole different conversation, and much of it is, is um, much of it, there's some ethical questions involved there as well. But certainly, uh, in light of what the nature, nature of the world is right now in terms of how we regard others, and particularly those that are seen as less than, uh, maybe Russians are seen that way now uh, on campus. And because they do have access to the information that folks back home probably don't. Uh, and if they have folks back home that they're having com these kind of conversations with, they might be really surprised at what uh, their folks back home are not seeing uh, or not hearing or not believing. Uh, and that's, uh, they're going to feel isolated as well. So it's important. Uh, they're going to feel it. And uh, you need, campus needs to be ready for them as well. Uh, and that's an important piece because there's emotional trauma that they're dealing with, financial emergencies, uh, the Ukrainian students, obviously, uh, personal fears of safety. And we, we certainly just touched on that a little bit because that's, that's going to be an issue. Uh, and really an uncertainty that they have no idea what's coming next. Uh, so it's, it's important that uh, institutions kind of take that kind of a pro a pro approach to it because we see this is a time when institutional ins institutions can really show leadership or they can kind of get sucked along with the rest of the crowd. Uh, and I think that's something we, we do want to pay attention to. And I'll finish just quickly with a, a quick note on your Ukrainian uh, students that are in, international students in Ukraine. There's over 76,000 there. Uh, we've, we heard the story last week of an Indian student in Kharkiv that uh, was, uh, was killed when he was going out looking for food for friends that were back, uh, hiding. Uh, we've seen uh, reports of uh, Nigerian students, or which one of the largest groups in, uh, in international student groups in Ukraine, having issues at the border, not being able to get through in a timely manner. Uh, and that's, uh, that's, that's obviously very sad to, to see that. Uh, and uh, the impact, obviously, these international students that are trapped there who don't have those ties, that their universities have been closed or bombed, uh, that uh, they're having to, uh, to flee. 
uh, it's, 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 it's one of the worst things you can imagine uh, that uh, you've come to a new country for an education and then you're forced to leave. So um, if, if uh, I don't, not many, uh, I'm not sure on the U.S. study abroad side how many U.S. students might have been in Ukraine, but I'm sure that's another issue campuses have been dealing with uh, if they have students on study abroad programs, but hopefully not too many. Well, that's all we have uh, for you this week on the Roundup. Uh, we do wish you a very good conclusion to the rest of your week, and hopefully spring is coming soon to, a, a, to an area near you. But for now, that's all we have, and we look forward to catching up with you next week on the Midweek Roundup. Cheers. <music>